politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, to a new and exciting week here at the Conservative Review podcast in our Northern Command Center. It is September 9th. We're getting very close to that 18th anniversary to 9-11 in this year of 2019 in this country of the Judicial Republic of North Korea. Yes, that is right. Our votes, our elections do not matter because we live in a judicial oligarchy. Today, I want to talk to you about how nothing will matter. Nothing indeed does matter until we answer the question we've been posing here for the last three years. Do we have three co-equal branches of government or do we have one branch of government that lasts, that laughs last? He who laughs last laughs best. If the courts get the final say in everything, don't we ostensibly have one uh, one branch of government and not just the Supreme Court, but any district judge that anyone chooses? So just before I get on the air here, I wasn't even initially going to talk about this, but kind of a change in plans here. <clears throat> a judge, John Tiger, T-I-G-A-R from San Francisco, says he's putting a nationwide injunction on the president's policy, which is in concert with not just our law, but even international law, that you have to declare asylum in the first safe country like Mexico before you come here. And if you didn't, you're not eligible for asylum. Says, I'm going to put a nationwide injunction on that. We are at a point here in this country where the left is coming back today after this long August recess. And by the way, it's already September 9th. Um, So it's partially a September recess, too. They've been away for six weeks. And Democrats are coming back like people with a mission. They are coming, they are seeing, and they are seeking to conquer. They are fixated on a gun control agenda, but many other issues as well. They know their sense of purpose. They know their beliefs. They know why they are engaging in politics. Republican members of Congress are coming back, fill in the blank. To do what? What is it that they believe strongly in? We have given a consistent narrative this past month on the need for them to come back and pound the lectern just as strongly as the Democrats pound it about gun control. They need to pound it on sanctuary cities and criminal control about this criminal justice reform, deform, jailbreak agenda, releasing violent felons, never locking them up, releasing them on bail, putting them on parole, all this stuff. And yet, we don't have a single Republican pushing a conservative narrative, a conservative legislative agenda on a single issue. I have never seen this any time in my entire career where we've had such a dearth of leadership. Then it comes to the president. You know, people chose Donald Trump in that primary, 2015, 2016, for a reason. Because they were sick of the same old excuses of Republicans saying, oh, we can't fight the budget bill because it might risk a government shutdown. Oh, criminal justice reform. Oh, dreamers. And here we have the president kind of echoing the same stuff. I'm not going to accuse him of creating this but he is not remedying it. And if you look at the president 
his tweets from the past day. It's just all over the place. No narrative. Nothing that's going to make the Democrats feel the heat. It's just this petty stuff and sometimes liberal stuff. And where does that leave you and you and me? Where, where does that leave us? I badly want this president to succeed. We have no choice. We have nowhere to turn. We have three people challenging him in a primary now, but all from the left, not from the right. So, you know, I can't be more pro-Trump than he himself is pro-himself. Where is the relentless narrative? Pick one issue. Pick sanctuary cities. I did a show on this uh, two weeks ago. The need for the president to declare war on sanctuary cities. Everything he tweets, everything he says should be about law and order, public safety. It not only blows up the gun control agenda, but puts the Democrats on defense. Let's face it. Let's face it. Right now, the Democrats have nothing to fear. Be objective here. Don't be a drone. Be objective for a moment. Democrats are in a very good position now. What winning narrative do Republicans have? Everything Democrats say get, gets pushed out now. Republicans have no competing narrative. You have even Texas Republicans like Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick there promoting gun control. What is there for people to vote for Republicans? I mean, where's the competing narrative? Trump's talking about Alabama, the hurricane track the whole time. There's no consistency. There's nothing. There's nothing. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that come next year, once you have a specific Democrat candidate, and it's not just a generic no vote against Trump, that the Democrats will have an easy time, and my hope is they won't. But why leave that to chance? As it stands now, they are not doing good. That shift in the electoral map in the suburbs that took place last November, if anything, it's gotten worse. You know, we'll see what happens in the special election tomorrow in North Carolina's ninth district. But either way, I mean, that that race shouldn't even be close. That's a Republican district. Where is the agenda? What is it Republicans feel strongly about? Let's say they had three quarters majorities in both houses. What would they be doing now? We certainly have an agenda here. I don't know what their agenda is. And the president's not leading. And meanwhile, San Francisco judges are being allowed to govern this nation with stuff that could never pass the legislature in 50 years. They do overnight with the flick of a wrist. You know, one of the few things that this administration has successfully accomplished, and even then it's not really an accomplishment, it's just reverting back to where it was before we should have never had this invasion at the border but the numbers are now down from the peak of 130,000 a month to about 50,000 a month still nowhere near the 15,000 a month that Trump achieved the first few months of his presidency but it's headed down why is it headed down because he finally listened to us on some of these policies of turning them back at the border is he going to allow that success which again is all relative anyway to go in the garbage because of a district judge? I want to revisit the judge point in a minute. But let's, let's set the table here. There is no issue 
that I believe is a better response to the Democrats' gun control agenda and in general could put Democrats on defense and realign American politics, particularly suburban voters, than relentlessly pushing a safety and security agenda against release of repeat felons and sanctuary cities. It is simply indefensible. We saw my home state of Maryland, thanks to the work we've done here, several others, Montgomery County, Maryland, they were put on defense and they had to put out a statement on all the child rapists released by the, by the county. And they were like, this is an effort of conservative organizations and neo-Nazis to get together and uh, uh, I don't know. They look pathetic. Because when you release other countries' child rapists and don't turn them over to ICE, there is nothing to say. You're caught red-handed. It's funny. We had um, the Baltimore County uh, executive, Johnny Oleswecki, communist here in my home county. So we were the first to report, now others are finally reporting it, that there were seven MS-13 dudes that were responsible for a recent murder here and how in a county that we thought we didn't have this, we now have MS-13 activity. And this guy, I mean, what is he supposed to say? He's a pro-sanctuary, pro-open borders guy. So he said, we don't have MS-13 here. Oh. So it reminded me of our, our son, Zach, our youngest. He's four years old. And, uh, you know, he's been trained, obviously, during the day for a while. But he's still at night having trouble. Uh, and, and recently, we just tried to give it an extra push and have him wear underwear. And every other night, you know, it's just it's been a disaster. <clears throat> and then he wakes up, wakes us up in the middle of the night and and uh, oh, gosh, forget it. You know, your, your day is over. And, and the worst is when he does it right before you're about to wake up. But maybe you still have another half an hour. So we get that dreaded knock on the door Saturday morning, 545 in the morning. And I'm like, oh, no, not again. You know, he did it. And the first thing out of his mouth is, Mommy, I didn't wet the bed. The bed was already wet. And I was half asleep. And the first thing I thought of was the Baltimore County executive just saying, we don't, we don't have MS-13 here, you know, right when we had a MS-13 murder. The point is, these guys are caught red-handed. They could not win with a sustained, disciplined, focused attack from the president to focus on public safety, to demand that Congress act, to demand that the public call their members of Congress. Stay on that. Stay off the petty politics. But instead, what, did that, what has it been? President, 12 hours ago, tweets, um, I, I couldn't believe this. When all of the people pushing so hard for criminal justice reform were unable to come even close to getting it done, Okay, this is him endorsing, endorsing jailbreak, okay? So they couldn't get it done. They came to me as a group and asked for my help. I got it done with a group of senators and others who could never have done it for it, who, who could never have gone for it. Obama couldn't come close. A man named Van Jones and many others were profusely grateful. I signed it into law. No one else did. And Republicans deserve much credit. But now that it passed, people that had virtually nothing to do with it taking praise. 
and he praises a boring musician the poor you know on the taking talking about the importance of passage of criminal justice reform they only talk about the minor players they don't give me credit now i usually throw my papers i'm not going to throw my phone but so rather than coming back to this legislative session the president saying you guys did what you release gun felons while having the nerve to talk about stripping Americans of their gun rights? Instead, he's like, I'm more pro letting out gun felons and violent felons and drug traffickers than Obama was. I got it done, and you don't give me credit. First of all, that is so vintage establishment Republican. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's not that there's anything new about Trump. We're, we're, we're caught with people that either worship Trump on our side or people that are like, oh, Trump's destroying conservatism. And they're all missing the point. Conservatism was already destroyed by the establishment. It's just that Trump, because we don't have a movement that keeps him focused, he is losing that opportunity to fix it. Instead, he's just becoming like it always was. Moving to the left and then in the hopes that the left will then accept you. And then he complains that they're not giving him enough credit for being more pro jailbreak than Obama was. So we've been speaking for a full month about the need for the president to pin the tail of blame on gun violence on the left. Instead, he endorses that very policy. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and then he just goes on to other distractions. Continuing with the Comey stuff. Um, where is this? I'm not seeing anything that's helpful. Talks about Mark Sanford a little bit. Then look at this. House Republicans should allow chairs of committees to remain for longer than six years. It forces great people and real leaders to leave after serving. The Dems have unlimited terms. While that has its own problems, it is a better way to go. Fewer people then will leave. So implicitly, he's complaining that too many Republicans are vacating seats and retiring. And he's blaming that on the fact that Republicans in 94 adopted term limits for committee chairs. Now, never mind the fact that most of them that are retiring actually aren't committee chairs. It only, it's only like one or two of them. But let's not let details matter. Um, really? So he, he's now pushing a liberal policy? Dude! What he should be saying is the opposite. Committee chairs have term limits for chairmanships. We need term limits across the board for the terms that they serve in Congress. I'm term limited. This is what he should, this is what he should say. I'm term limited. I serve two years. Members of Congress, it's time we end high capacity magazine politicians. You don't need more than three terms to kill a country. You know, remember when Chris Cuomo said, you don't need more than 10 rounds to kill a deer? Well, you don't need more than three terms in Congress to destroy our country. It's an 80-20 issue. Slam them with it. Demand action on it. Instead, he's like, no, we need less term limits. What, so we could have more of these rhinos? There's no good guy retiring. They're all a bunch of leftists. Every one of them. Rhinos who helped paint Texas blue. I mean, that's the thing. This guy's like Bush. I'm sorry, like, <laughs> it's it's same old. It, everyone's like, okay, he's not conservative, but he's populist. It's not populist. This is pure establishment stuff. Then he's like, I have a 95% approval rating among Republicans. Show me the poll. I, the, most polls have it 81, 84, or something like that. 
Um, I don't know what he's talking about, and I don't know what he is trying to convey with that. Um, let's see what else we got here. And then he talks about just random stuff. I mean, scroll through it. It's just random stuff. Where is the relentless narrative? I will keep the American people safe. I want to tell you, I want to show you what it means to be a voice. What we need from a president now, and particularly on these issues. On jailbreak, for example. Reagan spoke about crime. And it's funny. He uses the word criminal justice reform. Criminal justice reform used to mean what we want it to be. That we're not strict enough on criminals, that there's too many loopholes, that the ju judicial system cares more about the criminals than the rights of American, Americans who are, who are victims of crime. September 11th, 1982. Reagan's address to the nation on crime and criminal justice reform. Today, I want to talk to you about a subject that's been very much on my mind, even as we've been busy with budgets, interest rates, and legislation. And he talks about crime in our society. Many of you have written to me how afraid you are to walk the streets alone at night. We must make America safe again. Sound familiar? Especially for women and elderly who face so many moments of fear. And he talks about the rise in crime. And then he says it's time to get, get these hardened criminals off the street and into jail. Primary responsibility for dealing with these career crim criminals must, of course, rest with local and state authorities. But I want you to know that this administration, even as it has been battling our economic problems, is taking important action on the federal level to fight crime. And this is when he introduces his crime bill. And he has all sorts of ideas. Um, nine out of 10 Americans believe that the courts in their home areas aren't tough enough on criminals. Another eight out of 10 Americans believe that our criminal justice system does not deter crime. And he talks about different improvements. Revising the bail system so that dangerous offenders and especially big time drug pushers can't be kept off, can be kept off the streets. Now, even Republicans are pushing to abolish bail. And we see, we report every day, all these people that get out on bail and, and kill people because it takes years to even get a trial. He says, we also want to stop the abuse of the parole system by making jail sentences more certain. How many times do we talk about now the parole? Everyone's on parole. He talks about the exclusionary rule. This BS right that's been put into the Constitution that if there's something the judge doesn't like about the way the cops handle the case, it throws out everything. It can't be used to convict someone. Made up. Made up. And he goes on and on. And it speaks to us today even more than it did then. Because Reagan succeeded. He eventually had a lot of this passed. It was watered down. And it led to a two-decade-long 60% decline in violent crime. And now the last number of years, because we've turned back the last decade, thanks to Republicans agreeing with Democrats, that Trump used to trash, and now Javanka has got him to sign on to, we're losing all of that momentum. And especially the people going into the system now. I mean, I just reported today on a case of this illegal alien that no one is reporting he's illegal, who impregnated a 12-year-old girl. He was a fugitive for 16 months. He finally caught him. Big news. The bail was set at $50,000 for him.
A guy like that. No one talks about that, of course. And by the way, if you remember, I, I had Jessica Vaughn on, on Friday, so I didn't have time to talk about this much. But if you remember, we reported on this female black corrections office officer, and I only talk about the race because Trump has largely been bought into this because he thinks he can get the black vote. She was gunned down by a repeat offender who was arrested for theft and burglary and battery and gun violations and drug violations. Barely ever served a day in jail, including when he violated his parole. And he killed her. That is the gun violence in America, all because of the policies of the left that Trump himself is now promoting rather than hanging around the necks of these very people. I mean, I can't help him if he's going to violate his campaign agenda in the most grotesque manner. But anyway, this stalled in Congress for a while. It stalled for a while. In 1984, Reagan gave another address, and he gave many addresses on this, but I want you to listen to this particular one, courtesy of the Reagan Library that archived um, his radio addresses. He goes on to explain how the House, how the Senate passed this like 90 to 1. Yes, back then, even Democrats like Joe Biden um, were anti-criminal. And, and it was dealing with all sorts of important things that, you know, parole and bail and exclusionary rule, all these things that we need today. And then he said, the liberals in the House are holding it up. And then the president called on the people to do the following. Let's take a listen. We're not about to quit on our crime bill. We're going to do what we've done in the past. We're going out to the heartland and we're taking our case to you, the people. And so I'm asking for your help today. Please send a message to the House leadership. Tell them to stop kowtowing to the special interests and start listening to you, the American people. Americans want this anti-crime legislation and they want it now. And if those of you listening will lend a hand, we can get it now. Please tell your elected representatives you expect full and fair representation. And that means getting this bill out of committee and onto the floor of the House for a vote. Look at that leadership. He had a specific plan. He explained, and you can listen to the whole address. It's about five minutes. He explains the need for it. He explains what it does. It's a specific piece of legislation. Here's what you need to do. They're holding it up. He didn't say, oh, there's nothing I can do. I don't control all three branches. Although even when I do control all three branches, uh, we, we do nothing too. No, he's like, you push the bill. You start it in the body where you control, which just like Republicans today, back then was the Senate. You push it then and you say, the House is holding it up. And you call on the people, call your congressman. Tell them this is unacceptable. Relentlessly push a narrative. Notice Reagan said, like we've usually done. He did this with the tax cuts. This is what he did. He went to the heartland. He marshaled the people. He went around on speaking tours and radio addresses. And he had a specific piece of legislation. And he had an agenda. He had a vision. He had a focus. And then he would try to elicit pressure from the people against the Democrats. Why is it that the Democrats are the ones controlling the narrative without the bully pulpit of the presidency, which just control the House? Heck, they controlled it even when they didn't have the House, the first two years of this administration. Why is it that they're the one with the narrative? Tomorrow, they're going to have endless hearings on gun control in the House Judiciary Committee. Where is Trump saying, I am demanding the following votes on, on toughening sentencing 
and blocking the judicial loopholes that let out violent gun felons, um, um, fighting sanctuary cities. Think about this. Think about this for a moment. There is a budget bill that has to be signed before October 1st, or there's a government shutdown. Why doesn't Trump pick a fight and says, say, wait a minute, I gave you your spending levels. Remember, they capitulated on that. One thing you're not going to spend money on is neo-Confederate sanctuary cities. We cannot have anarchy in this country, violation of federal law, where they are harbor, harboring fugitive criminals, the worst sex offenders, how when ICE puts a detainer pursuant to law on murderers and child rapists and they let them go. This has to stop. It is indefensible. There is no way the Democrats could win a fight like that. Are you going to shut down the government in order to fund sanctuaries that release other countries, child molesters and sex predators? How hard is it to push that message? Call upon the people to elicit this reaction. But instead, there's nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, do you know how many loopholes there are now? Here's another one. I didn't even know about this. This is from ABC5 News in Minneapolis. Minnesota criminals use scam to avoid jail bookings, commit additional crimes. Ramsey County Sheriff Bob Fletcher told five Eyewitness News criminals are now using a tactic that started on the West and East Coast to avoid sitting in jail and then end up back on the streets committing more crimes. It is now happening every day at the Ramsey County Jail, said Fletcher. And I can tell you, it is now happening in virtually every Minnesota county on a daily basis, getting worse every year. And he basically said what happens is the criminals are, are arrested. When it comes time to book them in the booking area of the, of the jails, they tell the officer that they've ingested illicit drugs like methamphetamine and they need to be taken to the hospital. Then they need to take them to the hospital. And then once they're there, the officers don't, especially in the smaller counties, don't have enough deputies to babysit them like, like Border Patrol does, you know, with their people at the hospitals. So they leave. Once they leave, hospitals aren't law enforcement. They can't hold on to a guy. If a guy says, I'm out of here, he's out of there. And this has been happening all over the place. This is just one of the many things happening. This is the criminal justice reform we need. Like Reagan said, our system is not tough enough on criminals, especially in recent years where we've reversed the entire legacy of Reagan. And instead, the president, rather than hanging this around the necks of the left, is saying, I pushed jailbreak. I pushed Michael Dukakis, Van Jones's, Kim Kardashian, Soros's agenda on crime, and I'm not getting enough credit for it. Yeah, buddy, you're not. Maybe you ought to learn a lesson. When you ditch 80% of the country for the 20% of that, that support the elite view, not only do you lose the opportunity to win the hearts and minds of the majority, the silent majority of this country, but guess what? The same elites that you saddled up with wind up kicking you in the nuts. That's what establishment Republicans used to do all the time. They thought they would be in their graces for doing liberal stuff. I mean, tell me, how is this any different from a run-of-the-mill establishment guy? Except there's just more distractions and more color, color in, in what he does. I Man, I want this guy to succeed. Anyway, just in the remaining time, I want to come back to the courts. So 
you'd say, look, Republicans, when they're in control, they get blamed for everything, even though they're not pushing anything. So the left has its cake and, and, and eats it too. They get their policies enacted, but they don't get blamed for it because Republicans are officially in charge, so they get blamed for it. But it's worse than that because the courts are enacting everything they want without anything. Imagine if Congress were to pass a bill that said that any one of 7.8 billion people in the world, even though they clearly have no asylum claim, could come to our border and claim asylum, even though they could have previously chosen another country or passed through another country um, that's designated as a safe country by the UN to make that claim. How many votes do you think it would get? And if Democrats ever accrued enough power to pass that, I think we all know they would get crushed for agreeing to pass that. But one guy, Judge John Teeger, he's allowed to go to um, just create his own case and controversy. And he puts on a nationwide injunction. Now, this is important because he did this in July. Then the Ninth Circuit actually said, look, no, you can't apply this outside of the Ninth Circuit's jurisdiction. And then but he but but they did say, well, you need to provide more evidence or something. So he came back and he did more. And now today he said there's a nationwide injunction. (sighs) On Friday, Attorney General William Barr, as many of you have emailed me, um, wanted to get my comment on this. So he wrote an op ed that was strongly worded in The Wall Street Journal, basically saying categorically that by definition, injunctions outside of judgments for the individual plaintiffs are unconstitutional because it's not the judicial power. You don't legislate, you don't veto, you just give a judgment to a plaintiff. In in Smith v. Jones, Smith wins. Um, Smith can do this. So the notion that you could put an injunction on something outside of the plaintiffs by definition is is just unconstitutional. And it was it was well written. He gave both the legal and political case for his position. The problem is always is the punchline. And I'm going to have an article out today explaining this. The punchline should be so therefore it's illegal and therefore I, as the attorney general, chief law enforcement officer of the government, must go with the law and the Constitution, not with a lower court's judicial usurpation. Instead, what they do is he just said the Supreme Court needs to take this up. (sighs) If we are at the point where any district judge could do anything they want. And the executive branch will still give it the effect of law. We've lost our republic anyway. And practically, it's not going to help, as we've explained so often, to beg the Supreme Court, because once you agree that temporarily lower courts have the final say until the Supreme Court comes in, and even when the Supreme Court comes in, it's only the final say when it rules for the left, but when it rules for the right, the left could just come back with a new case and the lower courts will keep doing it. It doesn't matter. At some point, you have to stop this business of, oh, my only action recourse is to appeal. You, as the chief law enforcement officer of the stronger executive branch of government that holds the keys to enforcement, you must enforce the law. I want you guys once again to take a look at this chart I made between the green and the red. 
The green depicts the system of government we did adopt. The Constitution stands above the three branches of the federal government and the 50 states, and each one has their respective powers to check and balance each other. That is the system we adopted. But that's the system that's ignored. The system that is prevailing now, that Republicans, including even William Barr, agree to fundamentally, is the red system. That's the system where the courts, and now even a lower court, not just the Supreme Court, stand on top of the system. He who laughs last, laughs best. This is the big lie. Everyone's like, Daniel, you don't believe in separation of powers? I'm like, no, you don't believe in separation of powers. Why is it that the courts always have the final say? That's not separation of powers. That's North Korea. It's like saying, Kim Jong-un, we need separation of powers. You can't question his edicts. For the same reason why a court has the right for a legitimate case and controversy to go and put aside what the other branches of the government are doing and say, look, for my powers, for my purposes, I'm going to interpret the Constitution. How much more so the other branches have that power and indeed obligation to do so? It goes in a circle. And ultimately, you have a fight and you have elections and you know, they write opinions. I mean, I say this all the time. When um, Hamilton addressed this in, in Federalist 78, he said, what happens if courts usurp their power? They rely upon the executive branch to enforce it. So obviously they won't enforce usurpations. That, that was the understanding. Let me, let me put it to you this way. If you ask James Madison in 1789, who is more powerful, the attorney general or a Supreme Court justice, he would have looked at you like you're insane just for asking the question. How much more so if you would have asked him who is more powerful, a, a district judge or, or the attorney general? Everyone understood that the attorney general, and by extension, certainly the president, is much more powerful. See, Everyone's acting as if the, the courts have this lever to press, like injunction, like something is activated and like things in the, in the stars and the sky just start happening. Like, well, you shouldn't have done that. How dare you do that? Let's appeal to the Supreme Court. Nothing happens. A judge has no power. A judge adjudicates individual cases. But if a judge wants to make a case out of something that's not a case, that's fundamentally a political question, not a Smith v. Jones question, like, Ray, like, like Abraham Lincoln said in his inauguration address on March 4th, 1861, the policy, the notion, the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions. If that's true, we have no country because you don't have separation of powers. Let me ask you the next hypothetical question. Let's say, let's say you would have a judge with officially no case, officially no case. He turns on the lights in his empty courtroom, dons his uh, black robe, ascends the bench. No, nobody's there. There's no plaintiff. There's no defendant. There's no court case. And he gavels down 
such, such and such law or such and such policy is enjoined. Let me ask you a question. You're the Attorney General of the United States. Are you like, that was very naughty. I'm, I'm going to appeal to the Supreme Court. Or you just say like, dude, <laughs> you have as much power to enjoin it, even when there is a legitimate case before you, certainly when there isn't, as, as I do. I mean, what if, what, what if I were to go and say, Trump must meet with me on my policy recommendations every Sunday for brunch. And if he doesn't do it, I'm taking it to court. Is that a legitimate case and controversy? Well, it's, it's Horowitz v. Trump. If a, if, a, if a court were to indulge that, that would be just as illegitimate as a, officially no one petitioning a court for anything and the judge do, just doing it on his own. But what I'm telling you is even with a legitimate case and controversy, this is what William Barr is missing. It's not just that they don't have the ability to do it outside of their case, but even in the case where they're wielding legitimate power, they have no police force. Who enforces those opinions? It's the executive branch. It's the Justice Department. It's the Attorney General. That's not a bug. That's a feature. It's not like, oh, that's very naughty, Daniel. You're being very out there to not listen to the court. Well, we need not listen to the court. It's like saying that the president is not listening to Congress by vetoing the bill. That, that's a power that was given to them. If every, if, if finality of any decision is rest with any forum shop judge until and unless the Supreme Court decides, and, and then that's the final opinion, universally binding over everyone, oh, except if a lower court goes further to the left, then they can continue doing that. They're, they're, that that's a judicial North Korea. That's not the system of government we adopted. Doesn't William Barr know that he has the power? If a judge tells you that there shall be open borders, you in the executive branch are not allowed to use the various police forces, so to speak, the marshals, ICE, Border Patrol, against the law. You cannot give that force. Just like everyone seems to agree with judicial review, if Congress passes a law and the executive branch enforces it and a judge believes it's unconstitutional, a judge could refuse to give it the force of law to convict a person. So too, when a judge wants to give someone a, a right that they don't have, and that right, it's an affirmative positive action that depends on the executive branch, the executive branch has the right to say, wait a minute, I don't agree with that. That is unlawful. It's a two-way street. For if it were only a one-way street, that wouldn't be separation of powers. That wouldn't be checks and balances. That's the difference between judicial review and judicial ex exclusivity slash judicial supremacy. They don't get the sole and final say. They get an avenue, but as William Pryor said, he's 11th uh, Circuit ju judge, ultimately, ultimately what, what uh, Hamilton meant to say that the courts have neither force nor will they rely upon the executive branch to give its opinions force is that we rely upon the strength of our written opinions. But if everyone sees it's garbage, then it's garbage. So let me get back to this particular case with the border. 
a judge is now saying that 7.8 billion people, they could come violate asylum law and we have to let them in. So here's the deal. Here's the deal with that. Who, who is the plaintiff? Foreign nationals? No, the ACLU is the plaintiff. I'm not kidding here. The, the third party organizations, um, I don't have the wording in front of me because my article is not published yet, but it will be there. It's something like our attorneys have to work extra hard so we are affected by the rule. It's like saying that Daniel Horowitz of Conservative Review, you know, I mean, agree or disagree with me, I work very hard. I could get standing to sue anything I don't like because I have to then spend more resources and time to learn about it and educate my listenership and readership about the effects of the thing. I'm not engaging in hyperbole here. That is what the ACLU said. And Judge Teeger gave them standing. That's not judicial power. That's not a legitimate case in controversy. That's just as legitimate as a judge gaveling in a ruling without a plaintiff. There is no plaintiff. Number two, it's settled law that the president has this power, including case law of his own court in the Northern District of California saying that the right to exclude, deny entry is not just um, delegated authority from 1182F from Congress, but it's inherent in the president's executive authority to govern foreign affairs and certainly asylum law. These um, policies were negotiated with very sensitive diplomatic relations with Mexico and Guatemala. That's foreign affairs. What if a judge said, I don't like the Afghanistan war, which I don't like. He can't do that. I mean, you could, you, could, you, could, you could say whatever you want. This is what Barr is missing. There's got to be some point where you, you say, I am not going to give it force. It's not just like, it's not even not listening. Not listening would mean the courts have that power and you're somehow rejecting it. You need the executive branch to give it force. Just don't give it force. I'm not talking about individual criminal cases. I'm talking about a broad border question. You can't do that. I mean, this is the opportunity they missed with the census case. Judges don't write a census. The executive branch writes it. That was completely lawless. Recently, I've been, I, I've gotten hooked on Ancestry.com. I don't know how I got into it. Just, we're talking about family history recently. Um, and I was just looking up different things. And one of the biggest things you see are the census documents. And what's amazing is, you know, you'll see they all ask, are you a citizen or an alien? It's all there. How a judge could say our entire history is unconstitutional because I don't like Trump. And, and Barr caved. That's what I'm saying. So a lot of people think he's getting more aggressive. He's getting more aggressive that he's finally saying it's illegal to do a nationwide injunction. but then not treating it like it's illegal. He's just begging the Supreme Court. And look, you see the Ninth Circuit took away the nationwide injunction and the judge came back. It doesn't work. It's this false notion that these guys think that we have a conservative Supreme Court that's going to take care of us. And it's not. You know, at best, it's going to be a chicken. It's going to be a mushy opinion. You know, these cases are very complicated. So, they're they're going to give a whole like convoluted litmus test. 
well, these cases, you could do a nationwide injunction. Here's the standard. They're not going to categorically reject it. I can guarantee you that. All that's going to do is allow the lower court judge to say, well, look, but this is a legitimate case. Tiger said that. He said, while it's an exception to the rule, it's funny. <laughs> they always say nationwide injunctions should only be the exception, but everything they want to do is the exception. They're going to keep doing that. Because no one calls them out. No one files impeachment against them. No one even gives the inkling that they don't have this power. So they're going to keep doing it. It's time for Republicans to wake up and smell the judicial tyranny. The problem, the problem is not in like, oh, we need better judges. It's that we're according them power they don't have. You know, Ted Cruz, I'm going to put up here on the screen a tweet from, from Cruz where he complains about, oh, the Democrats are threatening to pack the courts, and he signed on to this letter that Senate Republicans sent to the Supreme Court. Don't worry, we have your back. They have it exactly wrong. I disagree with them. I actually, the Democrats are doing a lot of bad things, but they're not wrong. The Senate has the power to change the number of justices. Republicans are acting like somehow the Supreme Court is sacred. How dare you touch them? They should embrace the Democrats' willingness to tamper with the court. Because guess what? They're not wrong. The Constitution just says that there should be something called a Supreme Court sitting behind some sort of table, doesn't even say table, adjudicating four types of esoteric cases that, that's listed in Article 3, Section 2, and everything else is appellate jurisdiction that Congress may or may not want to give to them. Congress controls their jurisdiction. Congress controls the number of judges. Congress, I mean, Congress in 1803 abolished the entire session of the Supreme Court. I would use it to say, hey, Democrats, you're right. The Supreme Court's not God. You could tamper with the number of justices, and that's why the opinions of a, certainly a lower court justice are not God, and the other branches have the right, indeed the obligation, when it's a, an, an opinion that uh, is... is um, Lincoln said, upon vital questions affecting the whole people, we can't, they don't have the sole say over that. It's very simple. Instead, they're raising the specter of judicial supremacy even more because they erroneously think that somehow we have a Supreme Court that's conservative. It's not. The lower courts are screwing us every day. And the Supreme Court last term, I mean, it was a bloody term. It was a bloodbath. We got killed on a number of criminal cases, the census case, even cases where lower courts were good. They took the appeal and went the other way. Why won't anyone address the core of the issue? It's not nationwide injunctions. It's not even district judges, per se. It's not the number of judges. It's not the type of people on them. It's that all of the politicians are erroneously according the courts the sole and final say over vital questions affecting the whole people. And that's just not true. Nothing matters until this is addressed. Sanctuary cities, the border, crime, judicial tyranny. Where is the sense of purpose and focus from the Trump administration, from congressional Republicans, from conservative media? We're going to have to provide that leadership. But uh, look, I, I want this president to win so badly. But I mean, 
if we're not going to do anything legislative, le legislatively, even messaging wise, if anything executive is, is subject to any district judge and told unless we can somehow get an appeal, but then they come back another round, there's nothing, there's no purpose to having a second term. For what? Let's fight this. It's not, oh, Daniel, do you want the Democrats to win? No, I want, I would rather good Republicans win and actually fight for what they say they believe in. Let's pressure them. I mean, that's what Reagan did. Don't allow this president to drift. I'm just telling you, no good will come out of that. It's not good for him. It's not good for the country. Anyway, send me your comments, concerns, questions. If you disagree with me, dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at armconservative. But make sure you subscribe to our videos at the Conservative Review YouTube page. Till tomorrow, thank you all, and God bless.